I don't know how many times through the years I've heard this statement. You may have heard it yourself. In fact, I would venture guess everybody here has. You may have actually used this statement yourself. If Deanie and I were to sit down together this week and try to make a list and tally up the number of times that together we've heard it, I'm sure we couldn't even come close. It's a popular statement, particularly in our culture today, but it's been around for a long time, so it's nothing new. And in fact, even the sentiment behind it, there's nothing new to it. But this is it. And again, I don't know how many times I've heard this. I do know that I was shared or had it shared with me just this past week. So another time, even as I was putting the message together, somebody said this to me. The statement is simple. I'm not very religious. I'm not very religious. If I ask for a show of hands, I'm sure that a number of you could throw your hands up and say, yep, I've said that, or somebody in my family has said that, or somebody that I work with has said that. I'm not very religious. It gets used all the time. Well, as I was sitting at my computer this week, I started to make a list of the reasons that I believe, just personally, that I believe people use that statement, I'm not very religious. As the list was starting to form up, I'll just be honest with you, tell you, it got out of hand fast. The list just started to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow, and it got out of control. So I set it aside and I turned to the blogosphere to see what some people online had to say about that statement, I'm not very religious. I saw a number of different things written in blogs by different people, most of which I just discounted. I didn't pay a lot of attention to it, but there were some things that were really good. I read a blog from an evangelical Christian that was really good. I read a blog from somebody with a Catholic background that was really good. I read a blog from somebody with a Muslim background as he was talking about his faith and his faith system and how that term gets used. I read things from atheists. They were pretty insightful. But there was one blog in particular that came from a fellow named Justin Chambers that caught my attention. And the reason I liked it has to do with the simplicity with which he handles that statement, I'm not very religious. But it also has to do with his background. By his own admission, he was an atheist who is now a devout believer in Jesus Christ and a follower of the Lord. He does not say this in his blog, though it is implied. More than likely, he used that statement himself. I'm not very religious. It probably came out when he started seeking truth. It wasn't something he would have said while he was a devout atheist. It came out in the process of seeking truth. I want you to see what his blog said. Speaking of people that would use that statement, I'm not very religious, Justin says, it would mean they're irreligious or secular. Irreligious is defined on Google as indifferent or hostile to religion, while secular is defined as denoting attitudes, activities, or other things that have no religious or spiritual basis. In general, many people who are raised with religious morals or even those raised in an irreligious household can identify as being not very religious. The attitude surrounding the statement simply means they put forth no real effort into maintaining religious sentiments. Oftentimes, people who adhere to a religion will say that simply because they hard, will say that simply because they hardly invest effort into maintaining interaction with religion. Simply, however, they don't associate with religion on a daily basis. That is really a good summation of that statement. I'm not very religious. Now, the way Justin starts out seems somewhat anemic, 
But then very quickly, he gets into a a process of bringing a number of folks into the discussion. Those that were raised in the church, those that were raised in a religious background, and those that were raised without any type of a religious basis. He brings everybody into it, and he does it very well. At the end of his discussion, he says simply, however, they don't associate with religion on a daily basis. That's a great way of boiling that down. I'm not very religious. At the heart of it, it means you just don't associate with religion on a daily basis, however you would define religion. After I finished with Justin's statement, and I looked back at my own list of reasons that I presume people would make that statement, I went online and started looking in a different place. I just wanted to find quotes from people about not being very religious. And I was looking for a certain pattern within them because that pattern would fit within my list of why people would say this. So I went looking for that to see if it would validate what I believed. And it did. It did. Beginning with this quote, it seems somewhat apathetic about religion. I'm not religious, but right or wrong, that's me comes from easy e i'm not religious right or wrong that's just me that's an apathetic statement right or wrong i don't care what happens i don't care where it ends that's just me right or wrong now there's a little bit of decision making captured in that idea but there is also a great deal of apathy then there's an argumentative mindset that comes out of people when they make that type of statement. I'm not very religious. Here's a couple of examples. Number one, I'm not religious, so there's no church on Sunday. That's a shot sent across the bow of those that would go to church every weekend. I'm not religious, so there's no church on Sunday. Tamara Ecclestone would make that type of an argumentative statement. Here's another. To be quite honest, I'm not religious. Colin Hanks. That's planting a stake. That's a declarative statement. To be quite honest, I'm not religious. That's a a means of saying, let's stop the argument right here. I don't want to go any further with it. To be quite honest, when we start like that, we are building a wall in front of another person. I have no interest in having this conversation any further. To be quite honest, I'm not religious. I'm out. So we go from the apathetic into the argumentative, and then there are some other things that begin to rise up, like this one. I'm not religious. I'm not romantic. I live purely by logic. I make every decision by logic, and sometimes that leads me to the right and sometimes to the wrong decision. Laura Marling would believe that she's making that statement from the realm of the intellectual, Look at how she starts. I'm not religious, I'm not romantic, and I live purely by logic. I make every decision by logic, and sometimes that leads me to the right and sometimes to the wrong decision. At the exact same time that she would make her argument from the intellectual, she would say that sometimes it lets her down. Kind of an interesting way of seeing it. And then we find a quote like this. I'm not religious. I do have a baby, a four-month-old girl, And that's a religion in itself. George Meyer would seem to me that he's communicating a bit of curiosity. Maybe he wasn't religious prior to the birth of his baby. But when his daughter came, things began to change. His heart began to soften just a little bit. 
he began to see something in his daughter, his four-month-old daughter, that was stirring his heart. It's curious. I'm not religious, but all of a sudden I'm curious about religion, about the things of God. There are other curious statements like this one. There's this church that I go to a lot in New York. I'm not religious, but I love lighting candles and stuff. I find it useful. Curious statement again. There are certain portions of religion that do something that bring peace to my soul. There are certain portions of religion or the traditions or the practices of religion that stir something deep within me. It's still curious. And then there are statements like this. I'm not a scientist, not a theologian. I don't know if there is a God or not. Religion requires certainty. Now that is not only curious, that is seeking. That is a seeking statement. Listen to it again in light of that definition. I'm not a scientist, not a theologian. I don't know if there is a God or not. Religion requires certainty. That's just coming from the heart of somebody that's not positive yet. They have yet to make a decision. They have yet to plant a stake to say that I'm all in. It's seeking. There's other ways of communicating that same thing like this. I'm not religious in the sense that I do not subscribe to any particular set of religious dogma. I don't go to church. I don't read the Bible. But I believe that the word spirit with a capital S points to an ultimate reality which I give my heart to. Frederick Buckner would make that statement. I'm curious because there's something I can't explain. The effects of the Holy Spirit all around me, I can't explain. I'm aware of them but I can't explain them. Even though I might say, I'm not religious, I still know that God is on the move around me. And so I give my heart to that without fully understanding what that means. There's other statements as well. I'm not religious and I'm not a Christian, but I do reserve the right to believe in the possibility of a God. Also a seeking statement. I don't know yet. I'm holding on. I have yet to make my decision. It's a seeking statement. I'm not religious, but I'm not sure yet. A seeking statement. I'm trying to find answers. I'm trying to reconcile all of it in my mind. And then at the end of this little exploration, and this is following that progression that I believed we had, where we move from the apathetic into the argumentative, into the intellectual and the curious and the seeking, there comes a point where we find the absolutes like this one. I'm not religious. I just happen to have a relationship with Christ. That's an absolute statement. When a person says, I'm not religious, I just happen to have a relationship with Christ, they get it. They get it. That's the type of I'm not religious statement that I believe heaven would applaud. I'm not religious. I just happen to have a relationship with Christ. Which means, if you really start peeling away all the layers of this onion, I don't have faith in a religion to save me. I don't have faith in a denomination to save me. I don't have faith in a church to save me. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ that has transformed me. That is the depth of a statement like that. And it is one that Jesus himself would say, you got it. That's what we were after. That's what I wanted to have happen in your life. I wanted you to come into a relationship, not a religion. 
And you might say, Phil, I think you're taking a big old stretch to say that Jesus himself would applaud that. Well, I don't believe I am. And I want to show you why. If you have a Bible with you, open to Matthew chapter 23. With the guys that I pray with in the mornings, just today, I asked them to do a a little bit of a biblical test with me, an exploration with me. My question to them was simple. Tell me the public addresses of Jesus. The things that he said, not in a private setting, only to the disciples or a very small group of people. The things that he said in a public setting. And they started to list those things out. And we went through a number of them from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then my follow-up question was this. What was his last public address? The last thing that he said in a public setting before going to the cross. And they sat and thought for a bit. And we all looked at each other and I'd had time to think about it throughout the course of the week. And so I knew the answer. I wasn't setting him up. I just wanted to see if like me, they would struggle to get to that place. What was Jesus' last address? And they did, just like I did. They struggled getting to that point. But when you see it, it causes all kinds of things to go through your mind. It's found in Matthew chapter 23. This is the last public address of Jesus. I want to take you through it. So stay with me. It's 36 verses long. Here we go. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath, you blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it, by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you've cleaned the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and are all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That was not an easy message to hear. I'm sure it was not an easy message for Jesus to deliver, but I want you to follow the timeline. It's the last one that he publicly gave. Now, one of the first ones that would have been given in public was the Sermon on the Mount, but we could even argue that one of the first ones that was publicly given was given to Nicodemus. When Jesus would say things like this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I say that that was public because Nicodemus had to find Jesus in a public place. It wasn't a private meeting set up by Jesus. It was a meeting set up by Nicodemus, though you need to know that Nicodemus came looking for him in the dark. Jesus was addressing the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, a religious group of people that had risen up during the intertestamental period of time, just like the Sadducees, the two different groups that we hear about when we study the New Testament and we get into New Testament religions. If you had a concordance sitting in front of you and a concordance is simply a biblical tool that allows you to look up any word that you want and it will show you every use of that word in the Bible. If you were to look up the word Pharisee in a concordance, you would find out that it never shows up in the Old Testament. We don't find that word until Matthew chapter 3. That's the first place that it shows up. The Pharisees and the Sadducees became entities unto themselves during the 400-year period between Malachi and Matthew, the intertestamental period, the period where God was quiet. And as is often the case, when people aren't receiving what they want to hear from God himself, they start to fill in the blanks. They start to muddle things up themselves. And that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees as a whole were a group of people that believed that they were to live separate. That's what the word Pharisee means, to separate. They separated themselves from the Gentiles. They separated themselves from the unclean Jews. They separated themselves from the publicans and the sinners. They separated themselves from anyone that believed differently than they did. If you weren't willing to follow the laws of the Pharisees, the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with you. There were roughly 6,000 Pharisees during the time of the writing of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
the 33 years that Jesus was alive and particularly the three years of his public ministry. There were roughly 6,000 in Israel. But there were a number of other people that would have associated with the Pharisees, but they were not a part of the group. As a whole, that group lived separate. They lived a life lording their religion over everyone else. But not everybody did. There were some Pharisees that were seekers of truth. There were people like Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. He came to Jesus under the cover of darkness, and Jesus said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus was. By the end of Jesus' life, in fact, right after the end of his life, Nicodemus would make a public confession of Jesus when he went with Joseph of Arimathea, another Pharisee, to take down the body of Jesus from the cross and bury him in Joseph's tomb. Joseph was a Pharisee who became a believer because he was a seeker of truth. There is an unnamed man in Mark chapter 12. Most of us would skip right over the top of him. He's an unnamed man who was a Pharisee who became a believer. In Acts chapter 5, we read about Gamaliel, a Pharisee who became a believer in Jesus. He walked away from a separated religion into a relationship with Jesus. He heard what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23. He paid attention. He paid attention. They all did. They all did. And because they had been following Jesus around and listening to what he had to say, they know that standing in contrast to the eight woes of Matthew chapter 23 were the beatitudes that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 5. They are a direct contrast. If you were to lay the beatitudes and the blessings associated with those up against the woes of Matthew chapter 23, it would be an easy choice to make. You just heard the eight woes of Matthew 23. Listen to the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now you can do this. It's an interesting and fun Bible study. Take Matthew chapter 5, those verses we just read, and lay them directly against Matthew chapter 23. Pull out each one of the statements where Jesus says, woe to you, to the Pharisees. And he gets into some of that really pointed terminology. You blind guides, you hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs, all those kinds of things. You pull each one of those out of Matthew 23 and you place it up against the Beatitudes and you will see the direct contrast. I did that this past week and had planned on showing it to you. We just don't have enough time to walk through all of that. Try it. Try it. You'll see the difference. I would offer to you that those four Pharisees, Nicodemus and Joseph and Gamaliel and the unnamed man, knew the contrast. They chose the relationship over the religion. They chose to walk with God even when that meant walking away from something that they had known all their life. They chose to walk with Jesus. They wanted the relationship. They were tired, maybe, 
of religion. And they wanted the relationship. Now, one of the things that I want you to know beyond the shadow of any doubt, when Jesus gave that rebuke of Matthew chapter 23, it was never directed at the church. It was never directed at the church. And you want to know how we know that? The church didn't exist yet. The church would not come into existence until Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. This was man-made religions that had made their way into the purity of relationship with God. And he wanted, now that he was here, to say, you have opportunity to know God the Father through me. Don't let religion stand in your way. And I'm going to give you a gift, which is the church. And he loves the church so much that he would refer to her as his bride The church is the bride of Christ. And so Jesus says, this isn't directed at my church, even though the church will be made up of men and women and there will be problems in churches. The church as a whole is pure in who she is. She is my bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, we know that it is the goal of God for Jesus to present the church to his Father in heaven, holy and blameless, without spot, wrinkle, or any other blemish. When the time comes, that is the goal. So Matthew 23 was never directed at God's church. In fact, listen to me, church, it should be our goal to make sure that we never bring spot or blemish against the bride of Christ. We want to live in such a way that we can be a part of that presentation, holy and blameless before God. But at the same time, Jesus said, be leery, be careful of religion, because religion will never offer you relationship. However, the church can introduce you to it. The church can bring you into it. The church can be an expression of it. That's the beauty of the whole thing. That is the beauty of the whole thing. As we go through Matthew chapter 23, what we find out is, These Pharisees, these people that were in position of power during the writing of the Gospels were doing a whole lot of it for their own gain, for their own gain, for the praise of man and for their own gain, their selfish interest. At the end of the day, even in our modern world, people that have walked away from the church or what they believe to be religion have seen those same things. They've gotten caught up with people that are doing things for their own selfish gain and they're in it for themselves rather than realizing that when you're in the church and when you are in relationship with Christ, it is for your relationship with God. And there is a purity to it. There is a purity to it. And that's what James, the brother of Jesus, seemed to know. So much so that he would sum the whole thing up with just one verse. With just one verse. Join me in James chapter 1, will you? James chapter 1. We're in this series in the book of James and going to be a while yet. We're still in the first chapter and we started at the first of the year. So we got a ways to go. I'm having a good time with it. Hope you are as well. In just one verse, James, the half-brother of Jesus, would capture everything that we're just talking about when he says this. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's pure religion. That's pure religion. Isn't that cool? 
It's like James figured out the first commandment according to Jesus, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And he figured out the second commandment according to Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, it would almost appear that James would understand a completely new depth of those commandments. Show your love for God by how you love other people. That's, that's a pretty interesting dive into the depth of it, getting into the deep end of those two commandments. Listen to it again so you hear this perfectly. Religion that is pure, and listen, undefiled before God. This is the type of religion, the type of relationship that isn't worried about everything else that has happened, everything else that man believes. This is a religion that is undefiled by the world. It is a pure religion that God finds pleasing and acceptable. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. That's pure religion. That is pure religion. That's good stuff. It really is. What we find in James's teaching is a compassion that has to flow out of the heart of a believer. It has to flow out of the life of a believer. In fact, it has to flow out of something different than just the heart or the life. It has to come from somewhere much deeper. And if you want to understand that, then you're going to have to get into the study of Splanknology. Some of you are staring at me right now like, what? What did he just say? Splanknology. I'm going to show you a different type of love this morning. Tony Fantasi is sitting up here in my eyesight. He is shaking his head yes. You know what I'm talking about, don't you, Tony? Splanknology. Here it is. I'll put it up on the screen for you. This is it. That's how you spell it, and that's the definition. It is the study of the visceral organs, i.e., the digestive, urinary, reproductive, and respiratory systems. That's splanknology. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. In the Greek language, the word compassion shares its roots with splanknology. The word compassion in the original languages is tied directly to this, which means that when we have a compassionate love for another person, it comes from somewhere deeper than our heart. It comes from somewhere deeper than our head. A true compassion that is evident in a relationship with Jesus Christ comes from your guts. That's where it comes from. So let me illustrate that for you. I want you to imagine that my wife sitting here on the front row, I want to communicate to her because Valentine's Day was just a week ago. I want to tell her how much I love her. Now, it'd be easy to go to Rose Hours and stand in the card section and find a card that says, Honey, I love you from my whole heart. Today's terminology, I love you to the moon and back. I love you like that. But if I really wanted to communicate my love to her in a biblical way, this is what I would do. I'd come up to her. She's holding a pen because she's trying to stay out of the limelight right now. I would grab her hand and I would say, baby, I love you with my entire spleen. I want you to know that my love comes from my intestines. That's, that's where it comes from. That's how I feel so deeply about you. It comes right out of my guts. That's how you would communicate it biblically. And a pure, undefiled love for other people, a pure, undefiled demonstration of relationship with God that is poured out on the widows and the orphans comes from that same place. It comes from your guts. Splanknology. It comes from deep inside of you. 
This is here not because I was told to do it. This type of expression is here. This type of love is being demonstrated not because I have to, not because I'm putting checks on a page or in a box. It's coming from something deep, deep inside of me. This is coming from my guts because I want to glorify God because I want to do something that is pure and undefiled. So James says, take care of the orphans and the widows. He says, do it out of splanknology. Do it from something that deep, that deep. Now, I have to warn you that there are some side effects to things like splanknology. There really are. Just like any kind of a medical diagnosis or particularly prescriptions that are given to us, there are side effects. Here are some of them. When we start to love people like this in a pure, undefiled religion, we can expect discomfort, reduced time for recreation, increased exposure to awkward situations, feelings of helplessness, and any number of other emotions. When you choose to love people like this, expect this. But it is okay because there are other side effects like these. They will draw you closer to God when you choose to follow James chapter 1, verse 27. Doing that will help reprioritize your life. It will take your focus off of you and place it on other people. It will change your vision by helping you truly see others. Splanknology will open the door to God's unique blessings, will keep you unstained from the world, James says, and it will make an eternal difference. You might say, how is that? If all I'm doing is helping meet the needs of orphans and widows, how do I know that it's going to make an eternal difference? Because it's just helping one person. Julie Volkanan posted this on her Facebook page just this last week. Take a look. Helping one person might not change the world, but it could change the world for one person. That's how it affects eternity. And that's why James would say a pure and undefiled religion that is pleasing before God is to take care of orphans and widows, help other people, care about other people, love other people. If you are going to love God, then love other people. And that's what the Pharisees messed up over and over and over and over again. They love themselves. A pharisaical religion placed burdens and shackles on people that they could never get out from under and they could certainly never live up to it. That's why people were standing in the shadows of the Pharisees' religion, but they didn't join it because they couldn't live up to it. And that's why Jesus would say, Woe to you Pharisees! You will travel across the entire known world to proselytize one person, but you will place a burden on them that gets them directly into hell. That's one of the woes. The burdens and the shackles that were placed there were too much. Jesus came to cover us in grace and lead us into freedom. And it was the freedom to love other people the way we love him. That's what he was doing for us. And James, his brother, knew it. And so he told us to do the same thing. Just one verse, that's all it takes for James to sum all of that up. It's so simple. Well, here's the how-to portion of this message because this has to lead you to that place. How do I do that? Because I'm not even sure how to get started. How do I, as one person, change the world for another person? Well, let's go back to the beauty of the church. God gave us the church as an expression not only of our unique giftedness, but as an expression of our love for other people. 
And all I can do is tell you my experience from Libby Christian Church. This doesn't touch on other churches, though other churches have the exact same thing. But at Libby Christian Church, we have a number of different ways that you can get involved in a splanknology ministry, a visceral, gut-level ministry of touching other people. Here are just a few of them. Our children's ministry reaches out oftentimes to orphans and children in in tough, difficult situations. The exact thing that James was talking about. Student ministry does the same thing. They reach out to a group of students on a weekly basis. Many of them have very difficult situations in their life. And to become a youth sponsor says that I am going to surround those kids and I'm going to pour myself into their lives, loving them the way God loved me. And my love for them will become an expression of my love for God. Amen, Matt? That's the way it works. Student ministry does that. Women's ministry has expressions just like that to get involved in women's ministry and say that I want to be used. I want to do things to touch people at the base level of their lives. Our women's ministry just took a group of ladies to Washington, D.C. in January where they were able to stand in the gap for the unborn, visceral, gut-level ministries, loving other people. Men's ministry has expressions just like that. They have ways that you can get involved in people's lives and help people, even down the line to what James talks about, helping the widows. Dini sends out a number of different men at times to help widows in the church with things at their house that it might change their world. We have a group of ministries at Libby Christian Church called the Compassion Ministries. That starts with a wonderful ministry that we have known as our food pantry. A lot of you are aware of it. Mark, this last month, 201 people were helped. 101 families representing how many individuals? About 250 people were touched by the food pantry at Libby Christian Church in January. In January. That's a a pretty massive footprint. We have a mission shop that is open every week that is helping clothe people that don't have an opportunity to purchase their own clothes. We have a candle ministry that is a financial assistance ministry that's meeting people in the darkest, deepest places of their life and helping them through a practical issue of life, a gut-level issue of life. And our candle ministry is there and invested with them. Last year, they were able to do that with an excess of $12,000 that went back into our community just through that ministry in helping people stand on solid ground. There's a blessings ministry that sends people out to help with all kinds of different things. A funeral meal ministry that is there to meet people in the, the most difficult times of their life and bless folks over and over and over again. These are splanknology ministries, visceral ministries, gut-level ministries that express love for God. We have a welcome center that does the same thing and they never know who they're going to meet on Sunday mornings as people come in, they get a cup of coffee, maybe they're new to the church, maybe they don't even know Christ and they get to meet somebody at the welcome center that helps them understand that Jesus loves them. We have greeters that do the same thing that are there to greet people and if they don't know them to introduce themselves so that they might touch them in the most basic of ways, compassion-oriented ministries. Celebrate Recovery does this as well as they reach out at a gut level, as they touch people through splanknology at the visceral level, doing exactly what James said. And this list goes on and on and on and on. And then there's missions opportunities. 
Missions opportunities give you the chance to go and see exactly what James was talking about, orphans and widows different than you might ever see here. So you go someplace and you carry with you the love of God. Over the course of the past few years and going on through this year and probably into the first part of next year, we are are trying to get 200 people from this church in short-term missions where they can have their eyes open and touch widows and orphans and people in difficult places. And it may very well mean getting outside of your comfort zone and doing things that you've never done before. But when you do, your eyes are open to the needs of other folks and it realigns your vision. Ray, you just went on one of those trips. Did it realign your vision? It does. It does. Amy, you just came back from Cambodia. Did it realign your vision? So you do things like that. If you're interested in a missions trip, talk with Matt Warner or myself, and we will do what we can to make that possible for you. You do things like that because you want to be involved in a pure and undefiled religion that is pleasing to God. And if you still need a little bit of help with that, here locally, simply open your eyes like the Good Samaritan would. I'm going to share this story with you as our worship team comes up. Listen to this from Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to them, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. There's the two commandments. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, people of religion, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion visceral splanknology compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise.